Hello, you're listening to New England Climate Conversations, the podcast all about the impacts of climate change and how we can make a difference. I'm your host, Owen, and I'm joined again by my co-hosts, Dean, Luna, and Corbin. On this episode, we'll be talking about the climate readiness, quality, and affordability of housing in Maine, as well as the dangers and history of vermiculite as a form of insulation. But first, let's get into the weekly Climate Bites. For those tuning in for the first time, Climate Bites is our rapid-fire segment about recent major climate events. I'll turn it over to Luna to start. On Sunday, September 10, 2023, Storm Daniel made landfall in Libya, causing severe weather conditions, including strong winds and sudden heavy rainfall affecting several northeastern areas of Libya. Death toll is not estimated to be well over 2,000, with at least 5,000 missing. Storm Daniel caused significant infrastructure damage, including the road network and disrupted telecommunications network. But the death toll is likely to be much higher, said Tamir Ramadan, Libya envoy for the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies. He told a UN briefing in Geneva via video conference in Tunisia that at least 10,000 people were still missing. He said later Tuesday that more than 40,000 people have been displaced. That same storm brought biblical proportions of rainfall to Greece last month, claiming at least 14 lives across Greece, Turkey, and Bulgaria. The monetary cost of the storm is estimated to be well over $19 billion. Yeah, that's pretty rough, Luna. Um, And unfortunately, uh, it plays off a trend of severe storms earlier in the year as well, such as Cyclone Freddy that hit East Africa and Madagascar um, basically from the middle of February to March 2023. It was the longest-lived hurricane ever recorded, as well as the highest having the highest accumulated cyclone energy um, ever recorded. As I mentioned, it hit East Africa, including uh, Malawi, Mozambique, and Zimbabwe, as well as Madagascar caused over 1,400 fatalities and uh, and upwards of $650 million in damage. And of course, that's also related to the next climate bite, which is regarding the March 31st to April 1st tornado outbreak in the Midwest. So that affected the Midwest and the southern part of the United States, caused blizzard conditions in the upper uh, Midwest, excuse me, killed 33 people directly and indirectly, um, and caused a total of 28 million people to be under tornado watch as 147 individual tornadoes touched down, with 116 being on March 31st alone. Now, I mean, this was a historic outbreak for the area, um, only being passed by a couple of uh, by a couple other major outbreaks, including uh, one in 1974 and the 2011 super outbreak. Well, that's enough about storms for now. So I'm going to hand it off to Corbin to talk about heat waves. Awesome. Thank you very much, Dean. Uh, July was the hottest month recorded to date with a standing global temperature of 16.95 degrees Celsius. That's 62.51 degrees Fahrenheit. The peak of the hottest day, which was July 6, was a record-breaking 62.75 degrees Fahrenheit. This heat wave affected more than 6.5 billion people and roughly every four out of five people experienced climate change attributed heat. July was the hottest in 120,000 years on Earth, with this summer in general being the hottest since 1880. All right, thanks to all three of you for those climate bites. Uh, Now we'd like to move on to a piece by Luna about whether Maine's housing stock is ready for the impacts of climate change. Are Maine's houses climate change ready? Part 1, Hotter Than Hell. We've seen the news, devastating flash flooding, homes and schools unable to cope with rising average temperatures, and those whose homes and livelihoods are at risk of rising coastal sea levels. Climate change has been hitting home for decades at this rate, but what is to be done in the region with regards to our crumbling infrastructure when it comes to home sweet home, 
Today on New England Climate Conversations, we'll take a look at how volatile and previously unheard of conditions are leading residents of the region wondering how their places of mirth can adapt to changing conditions. First up, a look at Maine's cooling needs. Feeling the heat? It's not an anomaly. Maine is experiencing a rise in heat-related quality of life impacts. Temperatures in the high 90s are at least twice as likely not in the state because of climate change. Heat index is the measurement of heat when factoring relative humidity and ambient air temperature, which is why we feel muggy and miserable at lower temperature, but with a higher humidity level. Humidity prevents sweat from evaporating, which is potentially life-threatening, and the heat index continues to rise. The urban heat island effect has a pronounced impact on urban and heavily paved suburban areas. Impervious services are localities like pavements, roofs, and driveways. These areas tend to lack vegetative heat relief, with the most impactful being tree canopy cover. Impervious surfaces can contribute to both increased warming during the day, anywhere from 1 to 7 degrees Fahrenheit, and a lack of heat relief at night from 2 to 5 degrees Fahrenheit, according to the EPA. So what does that mean for people and animals? The impervious surface traps more heat more efficiently and is more slow at releasing that heat. In effect, we're looking at places that trap heat and keep that heat. Policymakers need to consider that our current industrial lifestyle, prioritizing concrete over greenery, will necessitate cooling solutions. According to the Maine Monitor, nationwide AC use has risen from 77% of homes in 2001 to about 89% in 2020. Maine ranks among the top 10 U.S. states with low levels of air conditioning fitted to the home, with one list using data from the 2020 Residential Area Consumption Survey. As with many things, this impacts our most vulnerable disproportionately, so if you're disabled, housing insecure, a senior or a child, you may be feeling the lack of cooling the most. Even worse, the state is looking at heat indexes in the hundreds in the coming years, according to current data. The problem is difficult to tackle. Window units are prone to supply issues and upticks in summer electricity consumption make cooling expensive to maintain. Retrofits for housing with HVAC systems are costly investments, and that's if you own your home to begin with. And finding a qualified technician can be challenging. Maine, with both its older housing stock and cold climate adapted infrastructure, is less likely to be able to meet increasing demand for cooling. Although Mainers, rising heating costs notwithstanding are cold hardy and resilient, the picture is a lot muggier for those hotter days ahead. Doing nothing, according to the State's Department of the Governor's Office for Policy Innovation in the Future, could mean health care costs could be 9 to 14 times higher annually in 2050 and 13 to 36 times higher in 2100 if hospital visits are directly proportional to the number of days with a heat index over 90 degrees Fahrenheit. What else are Mainers and others looking to move through the area thinking of doing in reaction to such grim data? Some are looking to interior Maine. A 2017 model from Climate Impact Lab puts locations like Piscataquis County and a climate advantage area. Some see a strange bright side depending on who you are to warming temperatures in places like interior Maine, where cold temperatures kill easily. Sound controversial? Warmer, shorter winters, according to some researchers like James Rising of the Climate Impact Team, lead to lower mortality rates due to warming and shortening winters in the interior region of the state. A rural renaissance, as it's called, is being touted as an upside to warming temperatures. Bowdoin College economist David Vale foresees climate refugees heading north, an opportunity to funnel them to the rural interior where he and others hope for a reinvigorated state. In a state like Maine where we see population hemorrhage, this idea of rural renaissance, an expanded network of town centers supported by updated infrastructure and economic opportunity, can be a bulwark against anxieties of disadvantaged residents. But don't be so sure that this is but a small speed bump in the region's future resilience challenges. Thanks for that one, Luna. So now we're going to uh, we're also going to talk about housing, but uh, we're going to take a little bit of a different turn. 
So this article is titled Libby, Montana, and Vermiculite, a story of insulation, corruption, and asbestos. Anyway, here at the Dynas Community Partners Climate Corps, one of the things we study a lot of is how to maximize energy efficiency in homes. And insulation is a critical part of that. You need to balance the cost of the quality of the materials, ease of installation, and, you know, all that good stuff. Most people know about fiberglass bat, that pink fluffy stuff you traditionally see in attics. It's been getting a bit more expensive, but it's still easy to install yourself, as opposed to something like blown-in insulation, or say, vermiculite. Now, not as many younger people may know about vermiculite, especially if they haven't studied it, which is perfectly understandable, because vermiculite isn't really used for insulation anymore. And, like many things that were once used heavily but have fallen out of favor, like lead paint or aluminum wiring, there are a history of health concerns behind it. Now, what is vermiculite, exactly? Well, it's a natural occurring mineral, similar to mica, that expands when heated. It also has applications for seed germination and replenishing um, the oxygen in soil. Anyway, on the surface, this sounds good for insulation purposes, right? Well, for insulation, it does work great. Unfortunately, though, this isn't the case if you're a resident of Libby, Montana, or if you're familiar with the situation there. Libby specifically exported up to 80% of the world's vermiculite from 1919 to 1990, when there were vermiculite mines active there. Well, so at this point, you're probably asking yourself, what's so bad about vermiculite? What's wrong with it? All those applications, so what was so bad about it that Libby went from producing almost the entire world's supply of it to having their mines shut down? That, my friends, would be the asbestos contamination of Libby's vermiculite mines, a particularly nasty and insidious form of asbestos as well called tremolite actinolite series asbestos. Now, many people are familiar with asbestos, its links to lung disease, in particular mesothelioma. I'm sure we all remember the commercials. These are all pretty well studied, but just to expand on it past the lung disease, asbestos has been traditionally used due to its fire and heat resistance. It actually comes from the Greek word suspestos, meaning unquenchable or inextinguishable. Well, asbestos is mostly fine when left intact, but it becomes a problem when it's disturbed and made airborne, where people can inhale it in their lungs. And when it gets in your lungs, it never breaks down. It just sits there. Company records from Libby, uh, which was... Um, the company in Libby from 1919 to 63 was called Zonalite, and uh, from 63 to when it closed in 1990, that was the W.R. Grace Company. Um, records from these companies indicate that 92% of miners had some sort of lung abnormality. Not exactly a comforting statistic. But how does it go from that to becoming the largest EPA superfund in history at the point? Well, that's because roughly two and a half tons of asbestos dust were being released daily from mining activities into Libby's air. Miners brought it home in their skin and clothing, made worse by the fact that W.R. Grace didn't consider it cost-effective to have showers for the workers to help alleviate this problem, despite having full knowledge. One quarter of family members of miners developed various lung ailments as a result. Overall, Libby residents were in the ballpark of having a 50% higher 20-year mortality rate from asbestos than the national average. Anyway, W.R. Grace filed bankruptcy after the mine was shut down due to health concerns, thus escaping legal trouble, but that wasn't going to bring back the 400 people dead and the 3,000 made ill in the town, not to mention the huge amount of contaminated soil. The site was made an EPA Superfund in 2002 and was beholden to the nation's largest asbestos cleanup effort in history up until that point, and while the EPA declared the site safe in 2018, I'm still not sure I necessarily want to buy a home from there. It doesn't help that W.R. Grace knew about the dangers of the site from the day they purchased the mine in 1963, um, which only closed in 1990 due to mounting public and media pressure, and the EPA still didn't step in until 2002. 
Many residents were not compensated properly at the time, although there have been various lawsuits and settlements over the years, including a state settlement of $25 million in 2017 with the residents and a W.R. Grace settlement of $18.5 million in 2023, as well as various individual settlements over the years. So, to tie this back into energy efficiency and insulation, there's a reason that certain products aren't utilized quite as often anymore. You know, there's a saying that many people are familiar with, that being, safety regulations are written in blood. And that's certainly true with Libby, asbestos, and vermiculite. And while you're not going to be seeing vermiculite insulation anytime soon, or asbestos, as it was banned for residential use in 1989, which was really not that long ago, all things considered, many older homes still have these products in them. After all, only 29% of Maine's housing stock was built after uh, 1989, which is definitely something to consider. Now, I'm going to bounce it back to Luna for a piece on housing quality and affordability. Thanks for that one, Dean. And now for a part one of a deep dive into climate change and housing quality and affordability. When looking for a place to live, do you consider that your home might be decimated by storm surges? How about wildfires? Perhaps a new home is perfect, but the location is set to be at risk of rising coastlines. In 2021, 1 in 10 U.S. homes about 14 million of them, have been damaged after a natural weather-related disaster. With that in mind, how do we find safe, long-term housing solutions to vulnerable populations? According to One Climate Future, lower income levels, race, and old age are just some of the social economic risks that exacerbate climate impacts. People who cannot afford to move or have insurance, as well as people who are susceptible to health complications from heat or congestion, will have the most issues with climate change-induced risks. As with many areas of life, our most vulnerable stand to struggle the most with housing insecurity and safety because of climate change's impact on housing supply and quality. The problem is labyrinthine and somewhat hard to tackle. Consider this. A young family needs affordable housing near the heart of the city for work. Kids need to be able to get to school in a timely manner since mom and dad are working long hours. Do they struggle with long commutes and an exile to suburbia? If they can afford it, a house in the city can be incredibly expensive to insure because of its proximity to the waterfront. Some of these properties could be close to industrial hazards, like a group of housing communities called Block 9 and One Climate Futures Case Study for Housing and Climate Change Risk. In South Portland, Maine, the case study identified parcels of land with both high rent and high poverty burdens and found a critical risk of flooding. Block 9, which is located along the Four River, which feeds into the Casco Bay, meets the criteria of high rent and high poverty burden. It is at risk of catastrophic destruction with both sea level rise and storm surges. Block 9 is flanked by petroleum storage facilities, so in the event of a water-based disaster like a storm surge, the petroleum could potentially leak into the Four River and nearby residential neighborhoods, a horrible health risk. For example, down south, some communities already need to begin the process of relocating. Like Ile de Jean-Charles, Louisiana, $48.3 million in community development block grant funds for the resettlement of Ile de Jean-Charles as part of the Office of Community Development's winning application to the National Disaster Resilience Competition was awarded to the island community to start the process of relocating. Although the resettlement is said to be voluntary, the existence of such a need paints a devastating picture of loss of connection to community and heritage. Many of the residents of the region are members of indigenous tribal nations, Land that supported generations of love and warmth now submerged underwater, lost to time. Within a few decades, four feet of sea level rise could redraw the coastline with familiar parts, such as southern Florida, chunks of North Carolina and Virginia, much of Boston, all but a sliver of New Orleans, missing. The Urban Institute finds that by 2050, most coastal states will have a significant portion of their affordable housing units exposed to flood risk events at least four times a year. 
20 cities with the most at-risk affordable housing units account for three-quarters of the nation's aggregated flood exposure. Heat waves and higher overall averages are starting to concern even the classically cold region of New England. In an earlier show, I covered Maine's housing stock in response to higher temperatures. To sum up, aging houses lack both the structural integrity of the housing envelope and cooling systems to combat higher temperatures. People who are chronically ill, very young or very old, and low income are more likely to live in public housing, which is decades old, with poorly built, maintained infrastructure, to say nothing of the lack of life-preserving accommodations like air conditioning. Furthermore, there is no federal cooling standard requirement like there is with heating. Gray space, a term I'm using to refer to paved and constructed areas which contribute to the heat island effect, disproportionately impact vulnerable populations. The places where these communities tend to live have lower levels of green space like tree cover and garden areas. These areas could see growing amplifications of heat-related disease and damage. Although the winters are becoming milder and wetter, which depending on who you talk to can be a relief from the region's weather winter woes concerning heating costs. However, heat variability is a challenge even in the picturesque and hashtag-worthy wonderlands of New England. As I've discussed previously, access to affordable cooling solutions is elusive for disadvantaged people in the region. For people who do not own their homes, being provided with all-inclusive cooling is not a given. Burning are most vulnerable to discomfort and disease, even death, as the planet in some regions continues to heat up. This has been part one of an ongoing series about affordability and climate change. I'm Luna with New England Climate Conversations. Back to you, Owen. All right. Well, that's the end of this episode. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. As always, if you enjoyed it, please leave a review on your favorite social media platforms and share it with your friends. Also, if there are any topics you'd like us to cover in the future, feel free to reach out via social media or leave a comment on our YouTube channel. See you next week when we'll be covering the relationship between climate change and extreme weather, wildfires, and glacial melt.